0: I'm at Cthulhu Con, talking to a woman sitting behind one of the many exhibition tables on the crowded convention floor. She's hawking a small handmade book called The Lovecraft Guide to Life. She says her name is Barbara and that she's the author. She says her book contains Lovecraft's philosophy, life, death, love, pain. It's all in here, she says, touching my hand. And even though her dreadlocks have been dyed purple and made to look like octopus tentacles, an obvious homage to the great Cthulhu himself, I still find her incredibly attractive. But before I can tell her this, or at least purchase her book, I wake up. Now I'm on a Greyhound bus and there are two teenage girls sitting in the seat behind me, noisily arguing about something. According to my iPhone, it's a little after 8 a.m., which means we still have two hours to go. Two hours till we arrive in Providence. This is going to sound strange, but this dream I just told you about was the second dream I had about Cthulhu Khan. I had the first one about five hours ago, in that dream, I found a strange envelope in my mailbox. It was purple, and the handwriting on it was old-fashioned and weird. And inside this envelope was an invitation to Cthulhu Con, a celebration of the life and work of H.P. Lovecraft. It was a simple invitation, a single piece of paper, large type, exhorting me to join with other Lovecraft enthusiasts for a day of communion and shopping. I put the invitation in my pocket and started walking around my neighborhood. The sun went down so fast I didn't even notice it get dark. But it didn't matter because this little piece of paper in my pocket was like a miniature sun. Everything now was warm and bright. I knew that CthulhuCon was going to be the event that would forever separate the old me from the new me. The failure me from the successful me the good-for-nothing me from the indefatigable me. So you can imagine how awful it was to wake up on the floor of my cold and lonely apartment. I was so distraught, I even went through all my pockets, just in case. But there was nothing. It really was just a dream. I opened up my laptop and googled CthulhuCon. But, again, nothing. But then I was struck by a very powerful idea. What if the invitations to Cthulhu Con went out via dream? I mean, it would kind of make sense, because in Lovecraft's story, The Call of Cthulhu, all of the main characters share the same vivid dream. The more and more I thought about this, the more and more I became convinced it was true. So I clicked over to the Greyhound website and bought myself a ticket for the 6 a.m. bus to Providence, Rhode Island, the birthplace and home of H.P. Lovecraft. Then I took a quick shower, packed up my recording equipment, and jumped in a cab to Port Authority. And now I'm on my way to attend Cthulhu Con. I'd like to try and record my journey to Cthulhu Con, but obviously I'm going to have to do a better job. I don't think you could hear what those girls sitting behind me were saying when I stuck my shotgun microphone over the seat, they started whispering, but this is what they were talking about. Apparently, one of their friends is rich and has tons of great clothes and shoes, and sometimes she lets these two girls borrow things, but whenever they post pictures of themselves wearing these clothes on Facebook, the rich girl always makes comments like, hey, that's my shirt, or... Nice boots. Where did you get them? Ha, ha, ha. These girls are so incensed by this so-called friend of theirs, they're actually discussing how they could pay someone to mess her up or even make her go away. The reason I'm recording is because I want to be a more reliable narrator. I just checked Twitter to see if anyone else dreamed about Cthulhu Khan, And believe it or not, Cthulhu is almost a trending topic. I have to say for a second, my jaw dropped, but I didn't find any mentions of Cthulhu Khan, just Cthulhu. It turns out Cthulhu was on South Park last night. Apparently he bit the head off Justin Bieber and destroyed Burning Man. The only non-South Park-related tweet was a reference to an article on H.P. Lovecraft by my friend Luke Sant that he wrote a few years ago for the New York Review of Books, but it's behind a paywall, so I can't access the whole thing. But I have found a few bits and pieces on the internet, so I'll, I'll read you a few of them.
1: Howard Phillips Lovecraft was born in Providence, Rhode Island in 1890, the neglected, lonely child of a father who died of tertiary syphilis after years of institutional confinement, and a mother who was by all accounts confused and immature. Growing up in his maternal grandfather's house, Lovecraft was left to his own devices. The foundations of his imaginative world were laid very early. He suffered the first of many emotional crises a near breakdown, at age eight. His formal schooling was sporadic thereafter, but he was voraciously engaged in self-teaching, particularly in astronomy. He published several hectographed journals of astronomy in his early teens, and in his later teens and 20s wrote an astronomy column for a number of Rhode Island newspapers. He began writing stories and poems in his late 20s, publishing them initially in amateur showcases. The main thing I remembered from reading Lovecraft when I was 14 was his prodigal expenditure of a certain kind of decaledged gothic vocabulary. Noisome, ichor, eldritch, miasmal, necrophagus, eidolon. It turns out that this sort of usage drops off significantly after the first few stories, although he never could quite shake blasphemous, unhallowed, or cyclopean. The early stories are flagrant pulp, which is to say that they are crudely executed goulashes of literary effects from all across the 19th century. That was the era when more was more, and it gave him license to unleash sentences that cannot now be read aloud straight-faced. Shall I say that the voice was deep, hollow, gelatinous, remote, unearthly, inhuman, disembodied? or? in that shrieking the inmost soul of human fear and agony clawed hopelessly and insanely at the ebony gates of oblivion. Sometimes it's impossible not to imagine an accompanying illustration by Edward Gorey. Wretched is he who looks back upon lone hours in vast and dismal chambers with brown hangings and maddening rows of antique books, or upon awed watches in twilight groves of grotesque, gigantic, and vine-encumbered trees that silently wave twisted branches far aloft.
0: Okay, so I just got off the bus, and now we are downtown Providence. And, uh, wow, sitting over there is a man dressed up as a woman um, with a beehive wig and uh, a bright red lipstick. (laughs) And it looks like he, she is shoving a chocolate ding dong into his her mouth. So obviously we will have to talk to this person. Excuse me. How are you? Okay, how are you? I'm all right. Have you heard anything about CthulhuCon? Yeah? What? CthulhuCon. No. It's no, like a what convention. Is it? A convention like conference, CthulhuCon.
2: It's a what?
1: Convention Center
0: is way, way over there. Yeah? All right. We'll try this out. Okay. Well, we are downtown Providence. And uh, downtown Providence has uh, more characters than I think even New York City has anymore. In fact, over there is a guy with a handlebar mustache and a cape. Time? I have
3: no idea.
1: That the work of H.P. Lovecraft ended up in the Library of America would have surprised Edmund Wilson, whose idea of a library was. In a 1945 review, he dismissed Lovecraft's stories as hack work with a sneer at the magazines for which they were written. Weird tales and amazing stories where they ought to have been left. Lovecraft had been dead for eight years by then, and although his memory was kept alive by a cult, there is no other word, that established a publishing house for the express purpose of collecting his work, his reputation was strictly marginal and did not seem likely to expand. Since then, though, for a writer who depended entirely on the meager sustenance of the pulps, and whose brief career brought him sometimes to the brink of actual starvation, whose work did not appear in book form during his lifetime, apart for two slender volumes, each of a single story published by fans, and which did not attract the attention of serious critics before his death in 1937, Lovecraft has had quite an afterlife, His influence has been far-reaching, and in the last 30 or 40 years, continually on the increase, if often in extra-literary ways. Board games, computer games, and role-playing games have been inspired by his work. The archive at hplovecraft.com includes an apparently endless list of pop songs, not all of them death metal, that quote or refer to his tales, and there have been around 50 film and television adaptations, although hardly any of these have been more than superficially related to their sources. There's a reason for that superficiality. Lovecraft's work is essentially unfilmable, not because his special effects are too gaudy or too expensive to translate to the screen, but because they're purely literary. Lovecraft was bookish in an extreme, almost paradistic way. He may not have worn a fez or been able to afford a wing chair, but he assumed the archetype of the 19th century man of letters. With his circle of disciples, the preciously archaic language in which he expressed himself, almost always using shoe in preference to show, for example, the humid cultivation of in-jokes that migrated from the correspondence to the stories and were perpetuated in stories by his disciples and the carefully tended aura, if quite self-aware, of forbidden knowledge. In other words, he was a nerd. He was a nerd on a grand scale, though, a heroic nerd, a pallid, translucent Mallarméan nerd, a nerd who suffered for his art. His art consisted exclusively of conveying horror, and in this his range was encyclopedic. As a setting for his horror, he built a whole world, a whole universe with a time span measured in eons, which others could happily continue furnishing indefinitely. His horrors themselves are, with a few unhappy exceptions, described loosely and suggestively enough that in effect they present a blank screen on which the reader can project whatever visual imagery is most personally unsettling. This explains the seeming paradox of an exceedingly bookish writer enjoying a legacy that is to a very large degree extra-literary. As a supplier of instruments for the cultivation of horror, he was custom-tailored for the suggestible 14-year-old boy, and the number of 14-year-old boys, some of them chronologically rather older, a few of them even female, is continually on the increase.
0: bookstore. I'm going to buy these discounted Isaac the Pirate comic books, and I'm going to ask the clerk about Cthulhu Con, because if anyone should know, it will be the guy in the used bookstore. You haven't heard of this, like, Lovecraft event going on this weekend called Cthulhu Con, have you? No. No? <sighs>
2: like a
0: look. Mmm, Ah. Uh, okay, Ah. Uh, if you tell me how to. C T H U L H U, right? Yeah, common. Providence. Oh, okay, it's not showing up there, so. How do you spell
4: it?
0: C-T-H-U-H-L-U. Events like that, people leave. Flyers, that's, flyers. flyers. that's why I, fly- I said, I asked the bookstore. And you uh, what if probably. it's like a secret event? <laughs> that's, see, that's what I'm worried about now, that it's like a special one, <laughs> to keep people in, like me out. Maybe it's in the cemetery where he's buried. Hey, cemetery. <laughs> Thank you so much. I can tell I sound like a dweeb, but like I said, I want this to sound more real, so I'm going to keep recording. Now we're in the supermarket, I'm talking to an elderly shopper and a young guy who's stocking the shelves.
2: Cthulhu-Con! Yeah, you don't know anything about I know what Cthulhu is, though, because yeah. what's-his-name-is-from-here, H.P. What's Lovecraft. Oh, oh, that He's, uh, like, the horror oh, writer. He's oh, from uh, uh, here. And uh, Call Cthulhu is, like, one of his books pretty creepy.
0: I saw his grave up there. Yeah?
2: Yeah, he's buried Up in court. the in, uh, in Swan
0: Point. Swan Point. Yeah, yeah, he's buried right over there. But I think it's like kind of like a it's like a secret convention. Hmm. Oh, it is secret society,
1: secret society. like that. Uh, what are they called? Oh, that's uh, serious. Yeah, that's
0: what I skull came down to bones, record eye, the but scu- I can not find
1: it. Huh? Well, the skull and bones. Do you know what time it started or? Uh, yeah. That should be interesting. I huh? I'll at least if I can ask around.
0: All right, thanks, man. No, see, no, 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 No spirits.
1: Lovecraft was an authority on the tradition of horror fiction. He was apparently not much interested in anything else. He could summon up considerable book learning when it would serve to buttress a story, but he did not waste time on frippery such as characterization, the business of daily life, or any emotions other than fear. The complete absence of even suggested sexuality in his work was much debated by fans in the Freud shadowed mid-20th century. The proposition, rather missing the point that he might have been homosexual, sparked ferocious arguments. Although he was married briefly, and many years later his former wife was moved to state, peculiarly, that he was, quote, an adequately excellent lover, it is clear from all available evidence that sexuality, procreation, and the human body itself were among the things that scared him the most. He was also frightened of invertebrates, marine life in general, temperatures below freezing, fat people, people of other races, race mixing, slums, percussion instruments, caves, cellars, old age, great expanses of time, monumental architecture, non-Euclidean geometry, deserts, oceans, rats, dogs, the New England countryside, New York City, fungi and molds, viscous substances, medical experiments, dreams, brittle textures, gelatinous textures, the color gray, plant life of diverse sorts, memory lapses, old books, heredity, mists, gases, whistling, whispering. The things that did not frighten him would probably make a shorter list. In supernatural horror and literature he'd written, the one test of the really weird is simply this, whether or not there be excited in the reader a profound sense of dread and of contact with unknown spheres and powers, a subtle attitude of awed listening as if for the beating of black wings or the scratching of outside shapes and entities on the known universe's utmost rim. Lovecraft is at his most effective when he evokes this inhuman realm, just as he is at his best when he suggests, rather than attempting to describe. The more spectral and unimaginable his subject, the more Lovecraft is at home. Where he fails utterly is in conveying lived experience, the material counterweight to his phantoms. His monsters, when exposed to the light, Exhibit the pathos of creatures in Poverty Row horror movies. His depictions of human life on Earth in his own day are the least credible elements in his work. It is, of course, unfair to expect a thistle to bring forth figs. Lovecraft only barely managed to exist on the material plane himself, and it certainly was not his subject. His strengths, meanwhile, were unusual and idiosyncratic. He had a flair for names, for instance. The monikers he hangs on his otherworldly manifestations Nyarlathotep, Yog sothoth Tzathagwa are evocatively miscegenated constructions in which can be seen bits of ancient Egyptian, Arabic, Hebrew, Old Norse. The Terror of Cthulhu is most vivid on the purely linguistic level Yah, Shub-Niggurath, the Black Goat of the Woods with a Thousand Young. The New England, he fashions, is so tangibly haunted in its nomenclature, Arkham, the Miskatonic River, Devil's Hop Yard, Noose Neck Hill, that he would have been wise to stop there and not attempt further description. He savors the dark texture of 17th century Puritan names, Obed, Peleg, Deliverance, Elkanah, duty Names, real and imagined, accomplish nearly everything his strangled Fustian tries and fails to do, suggesting vast stretches of time, experience far outside the modern frame of reference, the subterranean course of genetic inheritance, the repression of dismal ancestral proclivities.
0: I've decided I should just go to the cemetery where H.P. Lovecraft is buried. So now I'm walking back downtown to look for a cab. It's still pretty crowded, lots of characters, including the guy with the handlebar mustache and the cape, who is now staring intently at me, and now he's walking towards me. He wants to talk to me now. Yes. Cthulhu con. So you ha- you haven't heard about this?
3: Nope. There's like no signs anywhere. No I one's been I talking just, about I it. Just, there's a lot of misinformation about Lovecraft and Cthulhu. Yeah. What do you think like the main misinformation is? No, it's like some people they like you you've read, you've read the Necronomicon? No. Now some people they they just read, they just dismiss the Necronomicon as something HP Lovecraft came up with. They, they don't realize that that it's weak magic, but it's the real thing. You really think he didn't make that up? I know because a friend of mine he actually used one of the a spell on so, spell in the book from the Necronomicon spell book on somebody. Yeah. That per, to, you know, there's a spell in there to make somebody go away. He used he did that spell in 1998. The person who he did it on has been in the IMH down in Cranston since then.
0: Really? It, so you really think? What, what makes you think that he didn't make this up and it was actually a real thing? Hawana,
3: Hawan. One, one, you notice? You know, it starts out with a quote from from Zoroaster. Zoro Ast- I'm Zoroaster,
0: and, and I noticed they took that quote out of context from Zoroaster. Really? So, when you say that, like, there's a lot of misinformation. What do you think, like, the main problem for you is, like, an H. B. Lovecraft thing? Because, like, I'm one too. But well, it- well, the problem is they treat they treat the necro- con- nom- nom- Necronomicon
3: as if it's a joke. Because people don't realize when it comes to the occult, that's something you don't play around with. I, mean, I think that some people want to believe it might be real, but they're just not sure. It's just, there's some people they confuse, they confuse fiction with fact, but what they don't forget is that a lot of fiction, the best fiction is based on real life incidents. So I've talked to some people in the sci-fi community that some of them they just dismiss
0: it as fairy tales. Just yeah. they've never had that experience that I had. Yeah. Well, here's what I'm most worried about: is that this Cthulhu Con is like actually secret, and we need like a VIP pass to get in. Mm-hmm. Like it might be going on here this mm-hmm. weekend, but it's not like advertised. So I was thinking maybe I would find someone in the know who would know where it is. Well, the best place if you can't. do you, need Don't to you go, think it must be like a secret thing? I mean, if you need
3: to get online, you can try the library, but they're a bit, they're German No, it's stuff.
0: not online. I think that's the thing. I think it is going on here, but you have to. Meet somebody who actually will tell you the key.
3: Just best place to check your check your email right now is either at the library or at the Hotel Renaissance up the hill.
0: I think Cthulhucon is going on right here, right now, but we need to find someone who might actually know, like, the truth of where it is. Right
3: now, my bus is about. Okay, to leave. you gotta get, don't don't yeah, miss just, your just bus. Like I said, if you need to get online, okay. Best place, Hotel Renaissance in the library.
0: Thank you.
1: In 1926, Lovecraft wrote The Call of Cthulhu, which was to be the first installment of his life's work, a sort of unified field theory of horror. In the story, the figure of Cthulhu, an otherworldly being so terrible that it can never be seen directly, but is manifested by various attributes, first appears in a dream experienced by several people simultaneously during a minor earth tremor. There are suggestions of cyclopean architecture indecipherable hieroglyphics and a voice that was not a voice, intoning something that can only be transcribed as Cthulhu Fthagun. Soon it develops that police in Louisiana, investigating reports of a voodoo cult in the swamps, had come upon an indescribable horde of human abnormality, conducting a bizarre ritual around an eight-foot granite monolith. In custody, the worshipers, of a very low, mixed-blooded and mentally aberrant type were nevertheless able to give an account of their creed which centered on the great old ones who'd come to earth from the stars long before the appearance of humans. Cthulhu was a high priest who lived in suspended animation in the great city of R'lyeh, somewhere under the ocean waiting for the chance to rise again. After this, the mythos began to figure in nearly every story that Lovecraft wrote, and it developed ramifications in every direction. In the case of Charles Dexter Ward, a long, complex tale reaching back to 17th century Providence, it appears that the cult of Cthulhu is what actually underlies such heterogeneous matters as witchcraft, alchemy, and vampirism. Playing a prominent part is the Necronomicon, an ancient book Invented by Lovecraft in 1922, supposedly the work of one Abdul al Hazred, a name Lovecraft had devised for himself at age five under the spell of the Arabian Nights, a sage whose career ended when he was devoured by an invisible demon in broad daylight in the marketplace in Damascus. The Necronomicon is ritually invoked in nearly every story thereafter as the key to the commerce between the Great Old Ones and the human race, and it is soon joined by a shelf of other apocryphal titles such as the pre-human Pnecotic Manuscripts. It is possible to view Lovecraft's work as an expression of the mingled fascination and revulsion he felt for his Puritan heritage. Like the Bible, The Necronomicon is an ancient work, steeped in mystery and filled with horrors, that describes the compact imposed upon human beings by enormously powerful otherworldly beings. A compact that may not be in humanity's best interests, the earthly votaries of Cthulhu, hoping for favors and dispensation, have over the centuries engaged in secret rites, ritual murder, and nameless abominations to appease their masters.
0: Okay, so now I'm at the cemetery. Uh, Standing in front of H.P. Lovecraft's grave. I was kind of hoping that there'd be some more people out here, but it's just me. You can tell that people come here a lot because there's a lot of stuff on his tombstone some pens, some rocks, a few fake gems, and. What is that? I think that's a multi sided die, like the kind you use in Dungeons and Dragons. You know, I, I could roll it here and see if it gives me a final sign about Cthulhu Con. But, <laughs> yeah, I'm kind of scared to touch it. And it's getting dark. And I'm really, really cold. So I guess this is it. I'm really sad this didn't work out. I think I'm going to turn the microphone off now. In the seminal 1961 book, The Rhetoric of Fiction, Wayne Booth introduces the concept of the unreliable narrator. He writes, I have called a narrator reliable when he speaks for or acts in accordance with the norms of the work, which is to say the implied author's norms, and unreliable when he does not. The most obvious type of unreliable narrator is the mentally ill or mentally deficient narrator. Booth cites, for example, the Indian chief in Ken Kesey's One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, who inserts into his narration fantastic shrinkings and absurd happenings. Booth says these are authorial clues for the reader that not only call into question the veracity of the narration itself, but they bring to light the existence of the implied author as well. Another obvious type of unreliable narrator is the child. Mark Twain's Huck Finn tells us time and time again how wicked he is. But at no point in the story is the reader ever presented with evidence of this wickedness. In fact, quite the contrary. Booth mostly draws from the classic literature of Henry James and Joseph Conrad to explain his concept of the unreliable narrator. But the work of fiction that best propels his idea forward is Vladimir Nabokov's Lolita which in 1961 had been in print a mere three years. When Humbert Humbert speaks to us from his prison cell, he claims to be full of remorse for his deeds and cognizant of the fact that he has robbed poor Dolores Hayes of her childhood. But there's so much textual ambiguity, the reader is never able to truly know whether this confession is sincere or ironic. Of course, this textual ambiguity is one of the hallmarks of Lolita's power, and while narratologists continue to use Lolita to explore the limits of the concepts of the unreliable narrator and the implied authors in the cognitive limits of the reader, today, Humbert Humbert is one of literature's most famous and iconic unreliable narrators. Wayne Booth introduced the concept of the unreliable narrator almost 50 years ago and his classic definition has survived in nearly all narratological textbooks, but the ideas and concepts continue to be debated and discussed. Some narratologists, like Marilyn Dunning, reject the idea outright, refusing to acknowledge the presence of an implied author while others, like Walter Jacobi, insist that along with the implied author comes the implied reader. But the controversy that fuels most narratology conferences and Ph.D. theses is the question of how the reader is supposed to identify the implied author and determine what his or her norms are. The narratologist Anton James believes the question that must be asked is this. If Humbert Humbert is an unreliable narrator because he does not speak or act in accordance with the norms of the work or the implied author, then how do we discover what these norms are? As it is, Anton James writes, Nabokov doesn't exist in Humbert's world. And when we discuss the world of Humbert, his motives and behavior, Nabokov has to be excluded. This might seem a rather silly point to make in James' argument, is often challenged by those who point out that it is Nabokov himself who sanctions the normativity of the very world Humbert acts in. But if we turn to the flesh-and-blood author to solve the textual problems Humbert presents us with, James believes we then take an interpretive stance that is more deus ex machina, and we run the risk of erasing Humbert from the very work. For James, Humbert's unreliability is most likely due to his misinterpretation of Dolores Hayes' signals as being sexual rather than a deviation from the norms of the implied author, referred to as Nabokov. The real problem narratologists must confront, insists James, is whether the question of authorial control, empirical or implied, is of any relevance when we're trying to understand the phenomena of unreliable narration and unreliable narrators. The theorist Maro Wall takes a different approach. She claims that in unreliable narration, it is often very difficult to determine whether what the narrator says provides facts about the fictional world or merely clues to his or her distorted consciousness. Wall believes the question of whether a narrator is described as unreliable or not needs to be gauged in relation to various frames of reference. Wall speaks for a whole school of narratology that now sees the construction of an unreliable narrator as an interpretive strategy, in which the reader naturalizes textual inconsistencies that might otherwise remain unassimilable. These cognitive narratologists make the case that the reader uses his or her world knowledge to project fictional worlds. And this knowledge is stored in cognitive schemata called frames and scripts. And they insist that a narrative is unreliable, not compared to the implied author's norms and values, but to pre-existing conceptual knowledge of the world. One of the more recent controversies to hit the field of narratology is the issue regarding unreliable narrators in non-fiction narrative. The German theorist Carol Kohl, in her 1997 book The Reliable Real, cites countless of examples where the term unreliable is applied to voices we regard as wrong-headed in non-fictional works, historical, journalistic, biographical, even autobiographical. But she argues that since in these cases the narrator is the author and the author is the narrator, one cannot imply a significance that differs from the explicitly proclaimed. Cole's biggest critic is the literary theorist Jason Bloom, who continues to explore how this rejection of the transferability of the concept to factual narratives is determined by the fact that it is still tied to the idea of the implied author. He argues concepts like unreliable, untrustworthy, infallible all come from our intercourse with human beings, not texts, and that we are constantly surrounded by real unreliable narrators. And to claim that their unreliability is based on a deviation from the morals, convictions, codes, or conventions of an implied author makes just about as much sense as if we claim God responsible for our actions and doings. Our recognition of real narrators' unreliability, he says, is based on our decoding of their misunderstandings and our superior knowledge. And whether we are engaging with the narrator face-to-face, or through written or audiovisual mediation, in genres like news broadcasting, documentary, or radio. And while he is careful not to deny a fundamental and important difference between fact and fiction, he does deny there being any difference when it comes to the detection of narrational unreliability. Bloom is currently working on a study of Irwin Holmes, the mild-mannered Minnesota classics professor who shocked the nation in the late 1980s when he abducted his stepdaughter Rebecca and drove her around the country. Like Humbert Humbert, he too penned an ironic prison confession before his death in 1996. Some scholars are already claiming that Bloom's work will be the biggest contribution to the field of narratology since Wayne Booth first defined the concept of the unreliable narrator in 1961. Carol Cole thinks otherwise. She believes Jason Bloom is wasting his time. At best, she says, we can hope for a treatise on the inner workings of plagiarism. One of the great paradoxes of the digital age is that as the music industry continues to shrink and shrink, more and more music is getting made. Executives, MBAs, and lawyers are all at a loss as to what the future will be. But new business models are emerging. Companies like Red Bull, Mountain Dew, Levi's, Scion, and Bacardi all now have record labels, and many of their artists show up regularly on sites like Pitchfork and NPR Music. The lifestyle brand and shoe company Converse is getting into the game as well. They just opened a community recording space in Williamsburg where bands will receive free recording time. A company spokesperson was recently quoted in the New York Times as saying, the brand simply wants to give back to its customers. But not every brand can afford to do this. Just as musicians are struggling in the digital age, many lifestyle brands are as well. Andy Steinwitz is a bass player and the genius behind Brand Aid, an upcoming benefit concert for brands that are having trouble finding their way on the internet. Brands that Andy believes could benefit from Brooklyn talent. I met with Andy and a few of his collaborators at a Williamsburg practice space to talk about the project.
4: The, the thing is is that we're in this society now that that you do something cool and then... Like the Scion or someone comes along and says, here's a lot of cash, keep doing that cool thing. But they're not always the companies that I like, that people like me, that we like. So what we think with Brand Aid is to take those companies that we really like, but aren't doing so well. And sort of give them that, that the same treatment that the people that give you $30,000 a year we, we we do that for them as a thank you for existing.
0: But with the hope that maybe they might turn around and come back and sponsor you someday.
4: Yeah, why not, right?
0: Andy is a big fan of the Converse studio. Even though they've already rejected the demo tape he sent them of his band, Miss Pac-Man has a centipedis. He hopes more shoe companies will jump in the game. In fact, he's already got a brand in mind.
4: I used to wear Buster Browns. And those things were, there's, it's like a classic. It's like, Buster Brown. Just, it's always there. Like, you go in the store, and you have a couple choices, and Converse was one of them, and Buster Brown was another one, but everyone wears Converse, no one wears Buster Browns. What the heck?
0: Well, I mean, I think it's a, a kid's brand, right?
4: When was the last time you saw a kid wearing Buster Browns? The sure never wore out. They were
1: brown.
0: Andy believes that if more brands don't get into the music business, creativity will be stifled. For example, he told me that if something doesn't happen soon for Miss Pac-Man Has a Centipedus, he might have to cut one of the band's soon players.
4: When's the last time you saw like, a three-person band? There are only ten people nowadays. It's, it's ridiculous. You cannot make a living off of $5 shows, you know?
0: pure, but a little bit of, yeah, 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 yeah. Like, uh, 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 yeah, uh, yeah,
2: yeah, yeah.
0: Haley Comet has been a part of the Bushwick music scene since 2008. She says she'd like to see more women's lifestyle brands getting into the music business. She hopes Brand Aid will convince the feminine deodorant Soft and Dry that they could be just as big as Axe Body Spray. I've always worn Soft and Dry. Since I was like in sixth grade or fourth grade when I had like even like sweat coming out of my palms. My mom always taught me, wear your deodorant, go to class. And every time I put it on, I didn't stink. Some of the musicians I met, though, don't seem to fully understand the brand-aid concept. Scott Elmer is in six Williamsburg bands, including the Remote Desktops and the hardcore band, Ass to Mouth. He's penned a song for his favorite bodega, Liberty Mart.
2: It's, I think, the best bodega in my neighborhood, and probably in New York City in general. And they have really great meat pies. The people are nicer. These, these guys have, uh, I think, a lot better stuff. and I, I really feel like they should have some kind of presence that brings them in, you know, in front of the herd of the others.
0: Correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think Liberty Mart is a brand.
2: But yes, it is. No, it's not. But that's the thing, is it should be.
0: But even though Scott might be a little confused when it comes to brands, he does profess to understand how art and commerce can work together.
2: And Record what I'm about to say, because what I'm about to say matters. I read an interview with uh... Black Francis from the Pixies and he was they asked him basically you know are you selling out doing these shows like the reunion shows and they were like yeah we're doing it for the money but he said well we wrote the songs for the art 20 years ago and we're making the money off of that you ask me if we're writing some new songs no we'd be doing it we'd be writing songs for money it's different but so 20 years from now if we did something that Somebody decided what would be like relevant for like making money off of? Yeah, maybe so, so I could pay some bills. But I'm not doing it for that. Now.
0: It's just so it's so- so- hard. Francis Rains, a.k.a. Kim Jong-killa, made a name for himself in his native Philippines, but he's determined to make it work here in Brooklyn, even if it means always being broke. His poverty, he says, actually inspired his contribution to Brand Aid.
2: I was, I was coming for a party from a bar. I got really broke, few bucks left. I went to a deli. I saw this shim, it's a Korean noodle. You'll find it in every deli here in Brooklyn. Anyway, I went home, ate it, had a good sleep, woke up, energized. I went back to the deli, bought two of it, I ate it, went to a band practice, and I was really very creative. so I had this idea to create a song for this product, NONGSHIM, because I really liked it a lot. And it's real, I would not be lying. Actually, I can sing this from my heart.
0: says they're still working on securing a venue for the big Brand Aid concert, but that it will most likely be the Music Hall of Williamsburg or the Knitting Factory. Maybe even both. He promises to launch an informational website soon. But for now, check out the MySpace page for Miss Pac-Man Has a Centipedus. This episode of Too Much Information is called Keeping It Real. It was written and produced by myself, Benjamin Walker, with Bill Bowen. And it featured Luke Sant, Andy Steinitz, Haley Comet, Scott Emmer, and Kim John Killa. Special thanks to Cheryl Kaminsky, Mimi Lipson, and Michael Tapp, who composed the music I'm talking over right now. For more information about the program, visit the TMI Playlist page at wfmu.org, or you can also subscribe to the TMI Podcast.